0: Welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the fourth and final part in the Crimean War of 1853 to 1856. Last week I told the story of the Crimean War up until the famous Charge of the Light Brigade of the Battle of Balaclava, which was fought on the 25th of October 1854. I described how the British, at first, successfully repelled a Russian cavalry charge, but then they lost ground by a poorly coordinated counter-attack by their light cavalry. The Russians were therefore able to claim victory by acquiring positions around the besieged city of Sevastopol. Two weeks later there took place a larger and more bloody battle, the Battle of Inkerman on the 5th of November 1854. The Russians attempted to raise the siege with an attack, but although outnumbered almost four to one, it was the Allies who won an emphatic victory. The Russians suffered about 10,000 casualties and were discouraged from attacking the besieging army again. However, Allied casualties were also heavy, at a level that the public back home found hard to tolerate, especially after they learned about the poor treatment of the dying and wounded. Conditions were improved by the work of Florence Nightingale and her team of nurses, who cleaned up the military hospitals and set up the first training school for nurses in the United Kingdom the Russians suffered even worse conditions in their hospitals. The well-respected Russian doctor, Nikolai Pirogov, was outraged by the chaotic and inhumane treatment of the sick and wounded. As soon as he arrived in Sevastopol in December 1854, he began to impose order on the hospitals, establishing a much more effective system of field surgery. Winter weather and a deteriorating supply of troops and material on both sides led to a halt in ground operations. The troops suffered greatly from cold and sickness, but in the British camp the spirit of the troops was lifted by improvement in the supply of foodstuffs and other basic goods, mainly as a result of free enterprise. Among those who were involved was the famous Mary Seacole, a Jamaican woman who provided hearty meals, hospitality and medicines. The key to the improvement of supply was the construction of a railway from Balaclava to the British camp. As for the French troops, they were helped by the celebrated chef Alexis Sawyer, who helped improve food provisioning. The war was also taking its toll on the health of Tsar Nicholas, who became increasingly gloomy and began neglecting his health. As the pressure grew on the Tsar, the need for an immediate Russian success intensified. An attack, however, on the Allied disembarkation point of Yevpateria came to nothing. On Nicholas's behalf, the heir to the throne, his son, Alexander, dismissed Menchikov, Russia's Crimean commander, on the 27th of February. Alexander had to do so because Nicholas had insisted on inspecting troops in sub-zero conditions. Soon afterwards, on the 2nd of March, the Tsar died of pneumonia. Nicholas had not been as much of a warmonger as sometimes portrayed. He had been remarkably inactive beyond his frontiers. But he had made serious errors of judgment in his final years, which had led to the crisis of the war in Crimea. During his reign, the Russian literature scene continued to blossom, personified in particular by the figure of Alexander Pushkin Russia's most famous poet helped give his country a sense of national consciousness in poems such as the Bronze Horseman his novel Eugene Onegin and The Captain's Daughter an account of the Pugachev revolt of 1773 also all the plays of the famous author Nikolai Gogol were written during his reign with a sharp eye for the absurdities of contemporary Russia. His work, Dead Souls, depicted the plight of the peasantry. The government inspector satirizes human greed and the extensive political corruption of imperial Russia. And Taras Bulba is a novel with a romantic image of the Cossacks during the age of the Khmelnytsky uprising, described in previous podcasts. Another great Russian author of the age, Lev Tolstoy, decided to join the siege of Sevastopol after the Battle of Inkerman out of a sense of patriotic duty. He arrived in the besieged city on the 19th of November before setting off to Moldavia and wrote his account in a piece called the Sevastopol Sketches, which made his literary name. The newly crowned young Tsar, Alexander II, aged 36, took no interest in military matters. He was more liberally inclined than his father, having travelled widely in Europe, but ruled out any talk of peace that he deemed humiliating for Russia, and so pledged to go on fighting. Through his foreign minister, Karl Nesselrode, he made it clear that he was amenable to negotiations for a settlement in accordance with, quote, the integrity and honour of Russia, end quote. The main aim of this initiative was to draw the French away from British influence by offering them the prospect of an early end to the hostilities. As well as in Crimea, fighting took place in 1854 in the Baltic and in the Far East, although to a smaller scale. In order to create a blockade of Russia, a Franco-British naval force attacked and captured and destroyed the Russian or Fortress on the Orland Islands in southern Finland. And in the far east, minor naval skirmishes occurred where on the Kamchatka Peninsula, a British and French Allied squadron besieged a smaller Russian force. In September 1854, an Allied landing force was beaten back with heavy casualties and the Allies withdrew. British foreign policy became more hardline against Russia with the elevation of Lord Palmerston in early February 1855 to the position of Prime Minister. Then aged 70, he became the oldest person in British political history to be appointed to the post. He persuaded Napoleon III of France to break off the peace negotiations with Alexander and pushed not just for the destruction of the naval base at Sevastopol, but to roll back... Russian power in the Black Sea region, the Caucasus, Poland, Finland and the Baltic by drawing in new allies and supporting liberation movements against Tsarist rule. Napoleon III wanted to return Crimea to the Ottoman Empire and above all he sympathised to the Polish cause, favouring the restoration of an independent Poland. the Allies were joined in early 1855 by the Kingdom of Piedmont-Sardinia, by which 15,000 troops were sent to join the British in Crimea. For the Piedmontese Prime Minister, Camillo Cavour, the sending of this expeditionary force was an opportunity to forge an alliance with Britain and France, so as to promote the cause of Italian unification under Piedmont's leadership. Napoleon proposed a change of strategy. He was not convinced that Sevastopol would fall until it was fully encircled, and so suggested sending an army to the town of Simferopol, to the east, through which most of the Russian army's supplies were being transported. The British commander, Lord Raglan, was sceptical of the plan, preferring to focus on the continued bombardment of Sevastopol. He dragged his feet and so caused the abortion of the attack on Simferopol much to the annoyance of the French. The one serious effort the Allies made to cut off Sevastopol from its bases of supply lines was their raid in late May on the port of Kerch in eastern Crimea, which controlled the supply lines across the Sea of Azov. After a brief bombardment, the Allied troops were able to come ashore in Kerch without opposition. A contingent then moved further along the coast of the key fortress at Yenikale, where there then occurred extensive looting of Russian properties under the supervision of the British commander, Lieutenant General Brown. Attacks on Russian property in both Kerch and Yenikale descended into a broken rampage, with some terrible atrocities committed by the Allied troops. The worst occurred in Kerch where the local Tatar population took advantage of the Allied occupation to carry out a violent revenge against the local Russians. Aided by the Turkish troops, the Tatars looted shops and houses, raped Russian women and killed and mutilated hundreds of Russians. Among the excesses was the destruction of the town's museum with its rich and magnificent collection of Hellenic art, an outrage reported by William Russell a war correspondent who worked for The Times newspaper. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Sevastopol still remained the main focus of the campaign. In terms of actual fighting, the siege had gone through a quiet period in the winter months as both sides concentrated on strengthening their defensive works. The Russians, guided by their engineering genius, Eduard Totleben, developed highly sophisticated earthworks and trenches. Amid the building, the Russians launched sporadic raids at night against the trenches of the British and French. The artillery was relatively quiet during the winter, but in early April was renewed. The plan was to overwhelm Sevastopol with ten days of continual bombardment, followed by an assault on the town. The main centre of fighting was a small hill the French called the Mamelon, on which the Russians had built a fort. Several weeks of fighting resulted in little change in the front line, and the Mamelon remained in Russian hands. In April 1855, the Allies staged a second all-out bombardment, leading to an artillery duel with the Russian guns, but no ground assault followed. Then in June, a third bombardment was followed after two days by another assault, led by some troops called the zouaves, which were a light infantry regiment linked to French North Africa. Finally, the French were successful, and at the cost of heavy casualties, captured the Mamelon. Everything was now ready for an attack on key hill forts called the Malakoff and the Redan. The Allies launched huge numbers in an effort to break the siege, but after exceptionally heavy fighting, were repelled by the Russian defenders. The British lost about a thousand men, and the French perhaps six times as many. The British commander, Lord Raglan fell into a deep depression after the failed assault and died soon after of disease, compounded by mental and physical exhaustion. Then in August, the Russians again launched an attack towards Balaclava, when the conditions were foggy. The Allied force of 47,000, the French, newly arrived Sardinians and Ottoman troops met a Russian army of 58,000. The Russian forces were mainly militia rather than the regular army, and no match for the artillery and musket fire. The Russian forces broke and fled, suffering heavy casualties for no gain. The Allies continued the pattern of heavy bombardment, followed by an infantry assault. Lev Tolstoy, engaged as an artillery officer, describes the scene from the Russian Bastions. Quote, everything all around was falling in with their din. On the earth torn up by a recent explosion were lying here and there broken beams, crushed bodies of Russians and French, heavy cast iron cannon overturned into the ditch by a terrible force, half buried in the ground. Bombshells, balls, splinters of beams, ditches, bomb proofs, and more corpses in blue or grey overcoats Which seemed to have been shaken by supreme convulsions, and which lighted up now and again by the red fire of the explosions which resounded in the air. The final assault was made on the 5th of September, when another bombardment was followed by an assault by the French army on the 8th of September, resulting finally in the French capture of the Malakoff fort. The Russians abandoned their positions, blowing up their powder magazines and retreating to the north. The city finally fell on the 9th of September 1855, after a siege lasting 337 days. Hardly a building was left standing in the centre of the city, which looked as if it had been hit by an earthquake. The casualties were appalling. Something like a 1,000 Russians were killed or wounded every day from the last week of August and nearly 8,000 in the final three days of bombardment. At this point, both sides were exhausted and no further military operations were launched in the Crimea before the onset of winter, although the Allies set about the destruction of the Russian fleet and docks. At the same time as the siege of Sevastopol, there was heavy fighting in the Caucasus Mountains between the Russians and Turks. Tsar Alexander II ordered General Nikolai Muriavov to lead his troops against the Ottomans. Uniting disparate contingents under his command, Muriavov decided to attack the city of Kars, the most important fortress of eastern Anatolia. British General William Fenwick Williams was sent to help the defence and found morale low and desertion rates high. The Turkish defenders of cars included many newly conscripted recruits who had not been paid in months and many had obsolete weapons. And support services such as hospitals were non-existent. General Williams took command and quickly set to work to institute discipline train the troops and to reinforce the city's defences. The first attack was repulsed by the Ottoman garrison under Williams. Muriavov's second assault pushed the Turks back and he took the main road and the heights over the city, but the renewed vigour of the Ottoman troops took the Russians by surprise. The ferocious fighting that ensued made them change tactics and the siege dragged on into the late autumn. Heavy snowfall in late October prevented the Ottoman reinforcement of Kars. Unable to face the further hardships of the winter siege, they surrendered to General Muriavov on the 28th of November 1855, seven weeks after the fall of Sevastopol. Disagreements among the Allies had led to a failure to support the besieged at Kars as much as necessary. Although the fall of the fort was considered Of only minor significance at the time, it came to haunt them when the final peace negotiations got underway in the spring of 1856. The choice of the city of Paris for the Congress was a sign of France's heightened prestige, a significant achievement for Napoleon III. It came only three months after the ending of the Exposition Universelle, a glittering international event rivalling London's Great Expedition of 1851. Five million visitors had made their way to the exhibition halls on the Champelise. Peace talks had been going on throughout the winter, and by the time the delegates arrived in Paris, most of the issues had already been resolved. The most difficult party was the British, who were in no hurry to end the war. Urged on by a belligerent press and public, Palmerston insisted that Russia should be deprived of the Caucasus Mountains and Central Asia. Together with the Austrians, the British also took a hard line on where to draw the boundary of Bessarabia, a territory to be given back to Ottoman Moldavia. Palmerston argued that Russia must not have any access to the River Danube. In the end, a compromise was agreed where the Russians lost about a third of the Bessarabian land they'd taken from the Turks in 1812, including some of the Danube Delta, but they retained the strategically important mountain ridge running southwest from Chotin. For the Russians, this was a public humiliation, the first territory they'd ceded to the Turks since the 17th century. Announcements of peace were made throughout Paris and telegraphs spread the news across the world. The ending of the war was signalled by a thunderous cannonade, fired by the guns at Les Invalides. Cheering crowds assembled in the streets, restaurants, and in the evening, the Paris sky was lit up by fireworks. The Crimean War, however, for the Tatar population on the peninsula, was the final straw for those who had been unable to adapt to Russian law. As the Allied army began their evacuation, four and a half thousand Tatars set sail for Constantinople to relocate to the Ottoman Empire. Alarmed by the mass exodus, which was a threat to the Crimean agricultural economy, Russian local officials looked for guidance from St. Petersburg. Before the war, it had been the government's intention to discourage emigration, but Alexander II's view was that the presence of the Tatars in the Crimea was a nuisance and a potential danger. Voluntary immigration turned into panic and mass flight, so that by the end of 1860, some 100,000 Crimean Tatars had left the peninsula. Cities such as Kaffa and Yevpatoria, which under Tatar rule had been important trade centres, lost their function as the Russians built new port cities. To encourage the Christian settlement of Crimea, the Tsarist government introduced a new law in 1862 granting special rights and subsidies to colonists from Russia and abroad. An influx of Armenians, Greeks, Bulgarians, Germans, Swiss, as well as Russians transformed the ethnic profile of the Crimean Peninsula. All around the Black Sea, the war resulted in the transmigration of ethnic, and religious groups. Greeks emigrated in their tens of thousands from Moldavia and Bessarabia to southern Russia. On the other side of the Black Sea, tens of thousands of Christian Armenians left their homes in Anatolia and emigrated to Russian-controlled parts of the Caucasus. They were fearful that the Turks would see them as allies of Russians and carry out reprisals against them. Meanwhile, large numbers of Circassians, Abkhazians and other Muslim tribes were forced out of their homelands by the Russians. Muslim villages were attacked by Russian troops, men and women massacred, farms and homes destroyed to force the villagers to leave or to starve. The Crimean War marked a watershed for the Ottoman Empire, which was invited to join the European state system, its stability and strength considered vital to international peace. New ideas and technologies were imported, accelerating Turkey's integration into the global economy, and the war also led to a vast expansion of foreign capital investment, with an increase in Turkey's financial dependence on Western banks and governments. It stimulated the development of telegraphs and railways, and of Turkish public opinion, through newspapers and other types of journalistic writing. The war also triggered a reaction against some of these changes and the emergence of the so-called New Ottomans, who were opposed to the growing intervention of European powers in their homeland. The country most impacted by the Crimean War was Russia, for whom the Treaty of Paris of 1856 was a devastating blow. It lost its claim to protection of Christian subjects of the Ottoman Empire. It lost its protectorate over the Danubian principalities, and most humiliating of all, was required to cease maintaining a fleet in the Black Sea, and to remove all naval installation along its coast. The Crimean defeat discredited the Russian armed services, and highlighted the need to modernise the country's defences, not just in the strictly military sense, but also through the building of railways, Industrialization and sound finances. The image many Russians had built up of their country, the biggest, richest and most powerful in the world, has suddenly been shattered. Russia's backwardness had been exposed. The Crimean disaster had exposed the shortcomings of every institution in Russia. The corruption and incompetence of the military command The technological backwardness of the army and navy, the inadequate roads and railways that accounted for the chronic problems of supply, the poor condition and illiteracy of the serfs who made up the armed forces, the inability of the serf economy to sustain a state of war against industrial powers, and lastly the failures of autocracy itself. My name is Carl Reilert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. You can contact me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L at historyeurope.net or on the Facebook page for the podcast. If you'd like to support the show then you can do so at patreon.com stroke historyeurope Or if you like the History of Europe Key Battles then why not give it a great review on iTunes the music from today was composed by Frédéric Chopin. First there was the Prelude number 7, called the Polish Dancer, and then his Nocturne in F-sharp major. The next major event in European history was the War of Italian Unification, 1859-1861, and I'll cover this in the next set of episodes. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.